Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Hosea chapter 6. We have been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Hosea and using it as our outline, as our guide to formulate the theology of God's dealings with national Israel. And we've been demonstrating, hopefully, that the prophets all speak with one voice. How many times have you heard me use that phrase? Too many, I'm sure. The prophets all say the same thing where Israel is concerned. God sent prophets to Israel on purpose in order to tell them that they're chasing after foreign gods and their interrelationships with foreign nations was a form of prostitution, and he likened both the northern tribes and the southern tribes to erring sisters who were his wives married to him, and yet they have committed their whoredoms with the foreign gods chasing after other gods, chasing after gods that are not gods, gods of wood, gods of stone, gods that are worshipped on mountaintops or in the groves. And as a consequence, he has been laying out his case in the middle of Hosea, where he's been laying out his, his complaint against them to demonstrate that the judgment he's about to bring upon them is a righteous judgment. He's about to take the northern tribes and scatter them. Well, he's going to take them into the Assyrian captivity and then scatter them among all the nations. And yet all of the prophets all say with one voice that God's not done with them that he's going to regather them from all the places that he has scattered them. Last week we saw from Zechariah 2, well, okay, two weeks ago we saw from Zechariah 2 that God said that he's going to scatter them to the four winds. And then we see that exact same language picked up in Matthew 24, that he's going to go gather them from the four winds. And so we really cannot understand, here's my basic premise, we really cannot understand what the New Testament writers are saying about Israel unless we understand the cohesive proclamations of the prophets about God's dealings with Israel. And tonight we're going to bump into one of those places where modern theology has kind of warped what the Bible says about Israel because there is a great deal of modern theology that says God simply done with Israel. And the reason that they say that God is done with Israel is they say, well, he gave them the law. He gave them a covenant at Mount Sinai. He codified them as a nation. And then he said, be like this and I will bless you, but break these rules. I will curse you. They broke those rules. Therefore, God has cursed them. And that's why he threw them out of their land. And that's why he scattered them. And he's done. And then Churchmen go digging through the Old Testament and they see promises of restoration for Israel. And they say, that doesn't mean Israel. No, that means us. That means the church. Wherever in the Old Testament you read God cursing Israel, those same people say, that's Israel. <laughs> but whenever he says something good about Israel, they say, well, that's the church. And so they do this covenantal thing where they say, 
that Israel is the church in the Old Testament and the church is Israel in the New Testament. And then they just mix and match like mad so that they can say that references to Israel in the New Testament and all these promises to Israel in the New Testament are actually to the church. I disagree wholeheartedly and entirely because the Bible doesn't say that and none of the New Testament writers confuse the language. Considering the fact that the New Testament writers were all Jewish, I suspect that they know what the word Israel means and that when they use the word Israel, they are not using it as a word of art. They're not using it allegorically. They're using it to refer to the national people that they are a part of. That's why we've been looking at everything from the major prophets and the minor prophets and Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 and bits of Revelation and on Sunday morning, we're going to get to Matthew 24, and in God's good providence, Matthew 24 teaching is going to come on the heels of all this Israel teaching, which is great because most of the damage that people do to Matthew 24 is a result of the fact that they really don't understand their Old Testament Israelology. So this has been very fortuitous in its timing, almost like God providentially knows what he's doing. Yes, Gladys. I'll tell you a story. Please do. In 1844, in the Tin Boom home in Netherlands, they were praying at that time for Israel and for the regathering of Israel. And they knew that Israel would be regathered. In 1944 is when they were arrested for hiding the Jewish people. And during all the time that Father Tin Boom, he was the only one there that knew that Israel would be regathered. But he, he, but he went to church but they wouldn't let him hold any office because he believed that Israel would be regathered. I, I honestly, Gladys, don't understand how people can say they expect Christ to return, even though it's been 2,000 years since he's been gone. They still have the expectation of his return. But in the same breath, they'll deny the restoration of Israel because they say, well, it's been so long. And so they feel like they have to defend God's character and say, oh, well, all these promises God made to Israel, he did keep those promises, and he kept them in some spiritualized, allegorical way. But you don't need to spiritualize or allegorize these promises because everything that he said about their captivity actually came true in time very literally. So there's no reason not to believe that the restoration will be equally historic and literal, genuine. So, yeah, it is amazing what the church has done over time to Israel, and there is a very genuine anti-Semitism that seems to creep into so much of that theology. That's right. So, now, the beginning of Hosea 6, starting at verse 1, is actually a response to God's rebuke Commentators kind of struggle with where to fit this and how to fit this into the flow of God's case against Israel. All of chapter 5, which we read last week, is God repeatedly saying, I'm right to judge you because you really have chased after your foreign gods and you really have 
abused my rules and my laws, and you really have turned your back on me, and you really are stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, so I am right in my judgment of you. And then suddenly, chapter 6, verse 1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. But then by the time we get to verse 4, he says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Because your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew that goes away early. So he's accusing them of having a very partial loyalty. They have a commitment to God, but it's not a commitment that sticks. And so I think that what we're going to read in the first three verses here is actually God citing the way that Israel is. This is still part of his case against them. He's demonstrating that when things get bad, they come back to him. And they say, we're for you, and we're coming back, and you, you're going to heal us, and you're going to take care of us. But then he says, but you're just so fickle. So God is still in that building his case phase at this point because he said this at the very end of chapter 5. I will go away and I will return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. But then the promise, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And then he gives an example of them earnestly seeking. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us. That's the affliction part. But he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Isn't that an interesting little prophetic phrase? So that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. So they're in their affliction, and they're confident that the same God who wounded them is going to heal them. But then God's response is, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud. What he means is you walk out, you look up, there's a cloud in the morning, it's going to dissipate. He's talking about the foggy weather that you see in the mornings. And then it dissipates, it's gone in the sun. And like the dew, which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them into pieces. And this is really interesting language. So let's talk about this chapter so far. First off, notice the phrases, he's torn us, but he'll heal us. He wounded us, but he will bandage us. Who do the prophets give all the credit to for everything that happens to Israel, the good and the bad, both the wounding and the healing, the scattering and the gathering? Notice they do not say it went bad for us, and that's the devil. And then it got good for us, and that's God. Last night at the men's meeting, as we were talking about Philippians chapter 4, One of the themes that really came through was, well, you can't really understand this, and you can't really say this, and you can't really absorb this and make it part of your life if you don't understand that God is sovereign. God's sovereignty permeates all of the language that would give us comfort, or that would give us hope, or that would give us peace. I I believe it was Micah who said, it's sovereignty. you got to see sovereignty in this in order to really understand it. Well, same thing here. You have to see the sovereignty of God in order to be able to say, he's the one that tore us, but he's the one that'll heal us. 
He's the one that wounded us, but he's the one that will bandage us. Yes, sir? And he's not, they don't blame a nation. If it weren't for that nation, we'd have been fine or, you know. Right. If it hadn't been for those darned Assyrians, right. right. But in fact, it is God because they do have that view of God as absolute control. God as sovereign, God as in charge in all things. And then, of course, the wonderful phrase, he'll revive us after two days, he'll raise us up on the third day. Prophetic of the three days that Jesus said he would be in the grave and then rise on the third day. And then the word know, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. They know who he is. They make reference to him all the time. The name of Yahweh was well known in the Middle East. There were plenty of people who could say, we know who the God of Israel is. But here again, we see that language of knowing as being the language of intimacy. Not just knowing who he is, but knowing him individually, knowing him personally, knowing him intimately. Having a relationship with him of such intimate knowledge that Jesus could pick up that same kind of language and say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never had that kind of intimacy. So what was Israel's problem? It's not that they didn't know who God was. God delivered them out of Egypt. God's in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of smoke. God's the one who gave them manna. God's the one who gave them the law that they're living by. They know who he is. Their problem is their relationship with him has been so marred that he sees them as unfaithful wives, and they only see him as one of the gods that they are dealing with. They would go and bring their sacrifices to Yahweh in his temple, but then they would run off to the groves and run off to the mountains, and they would worship the other gods as well. And if they really knew God, if they were really genuinely intimate with God, then they would never have chased after the groves and the mountaintops, the Baals or the Ashtoreth. They would have left all that behind because they had intimacy with God. But here's what they want. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And his going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain that waters the earth, causing God to say, what am I going to do with you? Because your loyalty is not even tangible. It's like a cloud. It's like dew. It's here for a little while, and then it's just gone. So God's response is, I'm going to hew you down, but notice the method he uses. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. Okay, so God often speaks of revelation or the revelation of himself as light. In God is light. There is no darkness at all. We speak today of people being enlightened. Part of regeneration is enlightenment. And so God says that his judgment on them is going to be so revelatory that that's going to be the light to them. That's when they're going to recognize that they need the Lord, that they know the Lord. It all goes back to in their affliction, then they'll earnestly seek me. So God's going to afflict them, and through the affliction, he's going to bring them back ultimately to the relationship that they need with him because people just don't chase after God when they're comfortable. And we've seen it time and time again. 
Every time that God makes Israel comfortable and gives them peace from their enemies and gives them plenty to eat, they get fat and sassy and ornery and they go chase after their gods. And so God would bring about enemies and bring about warfare and bring about famine, bring about all kinds of trouble. And then they would run back to God, pleading with God, and they would do it God's way for a generation or two. And then they would turn again and turn again. So God is going to bring about an affliction on Israel of such a nature that it's going to be unlike anything before or after it. Daniel calls it a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And then Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24 and says it's unlike anything that ever was or ever will be again when God is finally going to pour out wrath on Israel and the result of it is going to be them finally turning, finally knowing their Lord, which has not happened yet. But look at the language of, therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. What does this mean? It means that the word of God through the prophets is so sure, so certain, that once he pronounces judgment on them, it's as real as if the judgment had taken place. It's that unavoidable. It's that inevitable. The prophets of God all talked about Israel's destruction They all talked about Israel being attacked by foreign enemies. They all talk about the fact that Israel was going to be taken out of their land so that the land could keep its Sabbaths. And God talked about all of that before he ever did it. Then why did he do it? Because he said he would. The destruction from God through the voice of the prophets was definite and real the minute he said it. Which, by the way, should be a great comfort to us. Because God has also said a great many things about us, and it's good to know that those things are sure and certain simply by virtue of the fact that God said it. Now that he said it, now that he put it in place, now the veracity of God in his power and splendor is all at risk if he doesn't do exactly what he said he was going to do. So if he says that everyone who comes to him through Christ is going to be received, is going to be saved, well, then that's sure, that's certain. From the moment he says that, that has to be the case. Once he says that those that are in Christ are spotless, pure, unblemished, perfected forever, well, you may not be perfected forever yet, but in the mind of God, that's sure, that's certain, that's definite, that has to happen because he said it. And once God says it, that becomes reality. So in Israel's case, he could say, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. So the things that happened, the things that fell out to Israel, very much like Alex said earlier, they didn't end up blaming the foreign nations. They didn't blame their enemies or the armies that came down on them. They recognized this is all God. This is God's determination. It was God that chose us. It's God that redeemed us. It's God that gave us the law. And what did we look at last week, week before, the Song of Moses? Before they even went into the promised land, Moses took the time to say, and you're rebellious, and you're stiff-necked, and you're not going to keep the law. And God has given you that law. God has redeemed you. God brought you out of Egypt. Here's the land of milk and honey. It's right in front of you. And when you go in, you're going to rebel, and he's going to judge you. Now teach that to your children. 
and pass that song on generation to generation so that when you end up in trouble with God, you'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that song. I, I can recite that. Oh, Moses said this is the way it was going to happen. So why did it happen? Because God said it was going to. Why are things going on in the Middle East the way they're going on right now? Why is it that the center of world geopolitics right now all centers around Jerusalem? Why is there all this upset about the potential caliphate in the Middle East who is determined to wipe Israel off the map? Why is Russia now coming down and shoring up what looks to be like a coalition of nations over there that are all agreed on one central theme, which is kill the Jews? Why is that happening? Well, and America's going to get dragged in. And why? Because God said so. This is all part of the judgment on Israel. This is all part of God's ongoing control of history. And I keep saying you can't understand history if you don't understand the Bible. If you don't understand that life here on planet Earth is about God dealing with his chosen people, then you're just not going to understand why nothing works. Doggone it, we got those people over there. We got, we got a Palestinian and we got a Jew on the White House lawn and they shook hands and they signed a piece of paper. Why doesn't that work? Well, because God's word isn't going to let that work. There's going to be no peace till the Prince of Peace comes back. And that's just the way it's going to be. So God can say, I've slain them with the words of my mouth. And judgments on you are like light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. Now, the word loyalty there, the Hebrew word, means a few different things. We've talked about this before, where when you see New Testament quotes, sometimes they'll be slightly different because the Septuagint translated the Old Testament into Greek, and then New Testament writers would quote the Greek version of the Old Testament and then our current translations oftentimes go back to the original Hebrew, and then those translators make a decision about word usage and word meaning. And so sometimes you'll see a quote in the New Testament that is clearly a quote from the Old Testament where the words will be a little bit different, and it's because of that series of translational steps that they went through. But this phrase right here from Hosea 6.6, is one of the most important theological statements in the Old Testament. In fact, so important that Jesus himself quotes it twice, which tells you something really, really important because Jesus validated the book of Hosea. And because Jesus validated it, I have every confidence that everything it says is true. And that means in the place where they're called not my people, they'll be called the children of the living God. In the place where it is said to them, no mercy, God's going to have mercy on them. In the place where they're scattered, they're going to be drawn back to their homeland. They're going to be set up in Jerusalem. They're going to be ruled over by David's greater son. All of that is in the book of Hosea, and Jesus himself validated Hosea. You want to see it? Somebody look up Matthew 9, 11 to 13. Somebody else look up Matthew 12. You know what? We'll all go to Matthew 12. And somebody look up Matthew 9, 11 to 13. The rest of us will go to Matthew 12. 
Who's got Matthew 9? Anybody? Three verses, 11 to 13. Somebody? You got it, Gladys? Read it nice and loud for us. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And he's quoting right from Hosea 6.6. 6. And he says, go learn what this means. In other words, go read Hosea 6.6. 6. Not that there were numbers in those days. But he took that principle right in the middle of the book of Hosea. He was so intimately familiar with every jot and tittle of God's word that he jumps into the middle of Hosea and says, go read what this one phrase means. I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. Now, in the NASB, it says, I will have loyalty rather than sacrifice in Hosea 6.6. What are some of your other translations say in Hosea 6.6? I'll have compassion. Right. So you get the idea? I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion. I'll have loyalty rather than sacrifice. The point being that the religionists of the day thought that simply doing the stuff, bring the animals, cut their necks, shed the blood, they thought that was satisfying God. They were just doing it by rote. They were just going through the steps. It's Saturday, kill a lamb. And he said, you don't get it. You don't get the whole point. The whole point is not about the sacrifices. What I want is mercy, compassion, loyalty, and understanding, a relationship. And all of that, he says, is more important than the fundamentals of that religion. The fundamental part of that religion was the nonstop shedding of blood. And he says, you've got it wrong. The sacrifices is not the know-all and end-all. It's about my relationship with you and then your relationship with each other so that you end up having compassion for one another rather than constantly judging one another because they were accusing Jesus and his apostles, just like they do in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1, this is one of those Sabbath questions. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple break the Sabbath, and they are innocent. But I say to you, there's something greater than the temple that is here. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, you would not have condemned the innocent. And what is it they didn't know? Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. So, Twice Jesus validated the basic theological statement right there in the middle of Hosea 6.6, 6, which gives me a tremendous amount of confidence in the whole rest of the book. Because I figure if Jesus says that book's true, well, you don't need better authority than that. 
if the one who rose from the dead steers you toward a book, go with that. I delight in compassion. I delight in loyalty. I delight in mercy rather than in sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So there's the clear statement. God says, ultimately, what I'm looking for is for you to truly know me. And you don't know me because you're so busy doing the religious stuff. And you're so caught up in the religious stuff that you think that gives you the grounds to go around judging other people who aren't doing the religious stuff the way you do the religious stuff. But you don't understand what I'm really all about. Since I am a long-suffering God and a compassionate and a merciful God, I expect my people to reflect that rather than this kind of judgment and rather than just killing animals and thinking I'm satisfied with that. Not satisfied with that, I want relationship. Okay, now I started tonight by saying that we're also going to bump into one verse here. This is going to be verse 7. That is a favorite verse of the covenantalists. And as soon as I say the word covenantalist, I'm aware that people here in the room or somewhere out on internet land may not know what that word means. And so I'm, again, just going to have to give you a real big overview of it so that you can understand the way this verse gets misused and abused. I already alluded to the fact that they refer to Israel in the Old Testament as the church in the Old Testament. And they refer, and they refer to the church in the New Testament as Israel in the New Testament. And that's the basis on which they do things like baptizing babies. Pedo-baptism is a result of covenantalism. Because if you mix and match Israel and the church, then they say, well, they used to circumcise babies. And so in the New Covenant, we baptize babies. And that becomes the justification for that activity. There are, of course, huge problems with that, like the fact that Israel only circumcised boys, so why are you baptizing girls? But the bigger problem is Paul already tells us what the fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision is. It's New Testament circumcision of the heart. So you already have your type antitype. You don't need baptism. And then, of course, the third problem is in the New Testament, you only find believers being baptized. And babies simply don't have the capacity to express any kind of outward faith in, in Christ. So there are big problems with that aspect of pedo-baptism. But pedo-baptism comes from covenantalism. Now, covenantalism as a framework starts with the idea that God made a covenant of works with Adam in the garden. And even though you can't find any sort of covenant with Adam in the book of Genesis. They construct one and they refer to it, since they know it's not in the text, they refer to it as a theological covenant. In other words, it's a covenant that they deduce theologically from other parts of the Bible and to kind of prop up their system. And then they say that after the fall, from that point forward, the covenant of grace was established And then there were various, this is their language, there are various administrations of that one and the same covenant of grace. So it's all under the big overarching covenant of grace, hence covenantalism. But then when you say, but what about the law? And what about Abraham? And what about the church? They say those are different administrations of the covenant of grace. So you've got this 
theological covenant of works with Adam that Genesis doesn't actually describe or call a covenant, even though the book of Genesis will later say that God made a covenant with Abraham. So the book of Genesis is clear about covenants when God makes them. I said all that to say, chapter 6, verse 7, is one of the places that the covenantalists go to in order to argue for a covenant with Adam. Because the NASB says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Well, there you go. What more do you need? Clearly, that says that God made a covenant with Adam, right? No. The word Adam is the standard Hebrew word for a man. When you read in Genesis that God said, let us make man in our image, it's the word Adam. Let us make Adam in our image. And throughout the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament, one of the common words for man is the Hebrew word Adam. Now, in the NASB, they capitalized, and rather than translate Adam as man, as they do pretty much everywhere else in the Old Testament, right here, for some reason, rather than translate it, they just carried it into the English as the proper name, Adam, and then put the capital A on the front, ta-da, covenantalism. But if you were reading it in the Hebrew, the likelihood that you were thinking that it was referring to Adam, the first man, is very, very slim. In fact, what God is saying is, like men, they have transgressed the covenant, because that's what men do. Like humans, they have gone their own way. They've chased after their own gods. They've pursued their own way because they're humans. But like men... But like Adam, like creatures, they have transgressed the covenant. In that case, which covenant is he talking about? The covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai. That's the covenant he's talked about all the way through this book. You've broken my law. I took you by the hand out of Egypt. I brought you here. I made a covenant with you nationally, and you broke my covenant. And by the way, if, if I was building an entire theological system as complex as covenantalism, and I was dependent on a proof text as shaky as Hosea 6-7, I wouldn't feel real confident because there's far too much mitigating information in the Bible that would work against that. But like men, they have transgressed the covenant, and they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints, and as raiders wait for a man... So a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. So what's he doing? He's proving here that they've broken the covenant. It's something as basic as thou shalt not kill, and now he's got priests waiting and killing people. He's showing the case he has against them. He's showing how treacherous they've become. Surely they've committed crime. In the house of Israel I have seen A horrible thing, says verse 10. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. Look at the last half of the last verse. Judah, there's a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. There he goes again. This book does that over and over again. 
You're guilty, guilty, guilty. You're very, very wrong. You're under the judgment of God. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to throw you out. You're like a whoring wife. It's some of the hardest language you find in the Old Testament. And I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to bring you back to myself. And I'm going to set you up in the land. And you're going to have peace from your enemies. And you're going to be okay again. And this is what the prophets say over and over again. That that series of judgment followed by restoration doesn't change. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it change. And I keep arguing that nowhere in the New Testament does it change. That where Israel is concerned, God says over and over again, judgment. Yes, absolutely judgment. You deserve judgment. I'm going to pour out the judgment. That's just right. That's just appropriate. After all, you're under a covenant of works. And I told you if you didn't keep these rules and laws, I would judge you. I have to keep my word. I am going to defend my holiness. I am going to defend my word and my law. And you didn't keep your end of the bargain, so I am going to judge you. And I'm going to restore you. Why? Because of promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because of a covenant that I made with David. And because my covenant and my faithfulness to my own word is superior to your guilt, I am ultimately going to do all the good things I ever promised you, but first I have to take you through the judgment. And God, who is not on human time, you know, we're in a hurry to get things done because we're getting older. And, you know, I, I got to get going and I got to, the clock is ticking. That's not true of God. God's got all the, literally all the time in the world. As long as there's a world, God's got more time. I wish Jesus would come back right away. I, I wish he'd come back by now. I didn't expect to see 60. I was a little anxious. Come on, let's go. God's not in the same kind of hurry I'm in. And he's not in any big hurry to restore Israel, but he's going to. And one of the reasons that people argue against that is they say, but it's been so long. Of course, Peter argues a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So we say, well, it's been like, gosh, what, 25, 2600 years since Israel was scattered out of their land. That seems so long for God. That's two and a half days. It was like Monday afternoon, and now it's Wednesday night. It's nothing to God because he doesn't live by the same time restrictions that we do. Turn to the book of Isaiah. We're pretty much done in Hosea that for the night. Like I said, we use Hosea as our framework for looking at the various prophets and what they have to say to prove my contention that they all say the same thing over and over again. Right at the top of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, one of the major prophets, Isaiah is actually a little bit later than Hosea, and yet he's going to pick up the same themes and say the same things. Right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The book of Isaiah starts with God proclaiming his judgment against Israel because of their rebellion. I mean, it reaches the point where basically God is just fed up right at the beginning of the book of Hosea. And that's the context in which you have that wonderful phrase, come now and let us reason together. God calling to Israel and saying, just be logical here. Let, just think reasonably, rationally here. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. We'll get to all that. And yet by the time you get to chapter 2, God's saying, I'm going to restore Israel. 
Right at the beginning of Isaiah, one of the greatest of the major prophets, exact same theme you find in Hosea. So let's start at Isaiah 1.1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, now by identifying those particular kings in that particular succession, this is kind of where we'll get to when we go back to 2 Kings someday in the future. Because we got to chapter 14 where we said, okay, this is exactly the moment of the minor prophets. So let's go see what the minor prophets have to say. And we started looking at some of the minor prophets and that got us into major prophets and now we're just doing all kinds of prophets. Hopefully it's been profitable. Hey! And who said boom? <laughs> and so when we get back, we'll find that toward the end of Second Kings, we'll bump into these kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Those are the last kings of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar comes down from Babylon and takes Judah away. And so Isaiah is right there during that time that the northern tribes have been taken. Judah should know better. Judah's being just as bad as, as the northern tribes were, as Israel was. And so God sends him Isaiah to say these really hard things to them. Listen, O heavens, verse 2, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared up, and they have revolted against me. He compares them to brute beasts and says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey knows its master's manger. Have you ever gone out horseback riding on a rented horse? Have you ever done this? I, I've done this a couple times in my life. You're nodding. Yeah. And once you're on the trail and you turn on that part of the trail that's starting to head back to the barn, have you ever had one of those horses that, exactly, one of those horses that just goes, I don't care what you want to do. I'm going to the barn. That's what God is saying. It's like a donkey that knows its master's barn, knows its master's manger. You don't have to tell the donkey which manger is his. He already knows. And he says, and an ox knows his master. But no, Israel, no. Human beings, no. No, animals know enough to know their master. There was a great ad you, you youngsters, you won't even know it. But RCA Victor, one of the early companies to make gramophones, which were record players that didn't use electricity, like the one I have in my dining room, there's a picture of a gramophone with a great big brass horn. And there's a dog sitting there listening to it. And the catchphrase under it is, his master's voice. The idea being that the recording is a recording of the guy's voice and such an accurate reproduction that the dog would think it's his master. Okay, same thing. Animals know. Animals know their masters. People, no. No idea. No. An ox knows its owner and a donkey knows its master's manger. Israel does not know. And my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. 
Because of language. God doesn't take it lightly. He doesn't take it as, well, they're exercising another option. Well, you know, it's me and some other gods. I'm just happy to be in there somewhere. No, he says, the fact that they've turned on me means they despise me. It's very black or white. It's very, you serve me, you love me, you know me, and me exclusively. First commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. It's either that or you despise me. Human beings like to think, you can be casual with God. When I get to heaven, I'll just say, hey, I always believed in you. And he'll go, good enough, come on in. No, but with God, there's no gray area. It's very, very yes or no, black or white. You love me, you serve me, I'm your master, or you despise me. And those are the only two options. They've despised the Holy One of Israel, and they've turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound, nothing healthy in it. There's only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Way to open a letter, Isaiah. He's describing the situation in Israel now. If it hadn't been for God's mercy, everybody would have been wiped out. God is giving Israel over to their enemies. Israel's enemies are coming in like marauders, burning cities, taking fields, taking their food, killing their children. And Isaiah describes accurately the situation and says, if the Lord of hosts hadn't given us a few remnants, a few survivors, we'd be utterly wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. So verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's now using that word as a nickname for Jerusalem. You're as bad as Sodom ever was. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? See that? We've been looking at God saying, I'll have mercy, not sacrifice. I'm not interested in just the religious stuff. I'm interested in you. I need the relationship with you. I need you to really know me the way I know you. And so he says here again, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. They thought that was it. They thought it was just the religion. There is a modern equivalent. There are other people who think, I go to church. I do the thing. You know, I go to church. Every Sunday, like clockwork, I'm in church. As long as we're out by 11.30, I'm in by 10.30. Because they think if they just do the religious thing, I'm not going to uh, harp on the Catholics tonight, but I think they are the very embodiment of that. Just show up and do the thing. Just go through the Mass. Come forward, genuflect, 
here, eat the bread, drink the wine, go sit down, you're good. That's just empty religion. It means nothing. And Jesus constantly berated the Pharisees for their adherence to this kind of just empty, repetitive religion. God himself says, I don't want any more of it. I've had enough of your burnt offerings from your rams and the fat of your fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Okay, now they've been told that three times a year they have to come to Israel and they have to come to the temple and they have to bring their their tithes. They have to bring their sacrifices. They have to bring their food and they have to appear before God, which God now calls trampling in my courts. He's not impressed anymore with their feast days or their repetitious behavior. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath and the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You get that? I can't can't have you keeping my holy days while you're living an iniquitous life the rest of the time. I can't tolerate sinful life and then pretend religion. So the new moons, the Sabbath, these are all things he required of them. The animal sacrifices, he required this of them. But when it became just rote repetition and they forgot the God they were supposed to be worshiping, he says, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I don't want any more of it. Don't bother with it. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Does God have the ability to be like that? Does God have the capacity to say, you know, you can bring your sacrifices. You can do your religion. You can show up regularly and go through the steps. You can even pray to me repeatedly. And I don't care. I'm not impressed. Again, doesn't this come under the heading of sovereignty? God has the right to refuse or to accept. And he's been that way, by the way, ever since Cain and Abel. When God said, yeah, I'll take that one and not that one. It has always been the character and the nature of God to choose, to elect, and also to reject. It has always been the nature and the character of God to be able to say, you do it my way or... It's unacceptable. Jesus, of course, gave the same kind of statements to the Pharisees, telling them that their prayers were just empty, and charging them with what he called vain repetition, just going back praying over and over and over again. And he says, uh, don't be like the Pharisees. They think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Like God at some point is going to go, oh, all right, you talked me into it. You know, if you hadn't said that the 84th time, I probably wouldn't have listened. But So here's God saying, you can come and pray to me. You can do all the sacrificing. You can do all the religious stuff. And I'm under no obligation to listen to you. I'm weary of bearing it. I will not listen. Why? 
second half of verse 15 or the last phrase in verse 15, because your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. All of that is compassion and mercy. I'll have compassion and not sacrifice. So you see, when Hosea said it, in Hosea 6.6, 6, and Jesus repeats it twice in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, it's really kind of thematic that God has given the law to his chosen people and he has given them the standard to live by, but only if they do it faithfully with a pure heart as worship to God does it have any value. If you think that the religion itself is what is satisfying God, just the repetition and the blood and the animal and show up three times a year, go through the rope movement, pray, 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 genuflect, genuflect, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. If you think that that's all it takes in order to satisfy God, but no relationship, and if the result of that relationship with God doesn't culminate in mercy to other people, compassion toward other people, all religion can do for you is make you a judgmental legalist. That's all religion can do. It takes relationship with God. It takes the mind, the heart, the spirit of God to actually reflect the character and the nature of God, which would show in things like being kind and long-suffering and patient and compassionate, merciful. So God desires that he doesn't desire the religious stuff, but people to this very day keep bringing him the religious stuff. And they think that's satisfying him. Mm. Foolish people. So come now, says verse 18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, right? Your hands are covered in blood. Your sins are bloody. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. For if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord is spoken. There he goes again. I'll destroy them. I'll devour them. I'll cut them down with my word through my prophets. Truly, the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Once he said it, that's it. How the faithful city has become a harlot. Does that sound familiar? How often have we seen this now by the mouth of several prophets? They all say the same thing. The rebellion of Israel is tantamount to a wife becoming a harlot. She was full of justice righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. I'm sorry, wait, are we talking about modern politics? Or are we talking? Some things don't change. And they do not defend the orphan nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, 
I will be relieved of my adversaries, and I will avenge myself on my foes, and I will also turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye. In other words, I'm going to clean it up. I will remove all your alloy. In other words, I'll only leave the pure silver. And then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired worshiping trees. And you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. Those are the, the gardens made to the Asherah. For you will be like the oak whose leaves fade away, and as a garden that has no water. And the strong man will become tinder, and his work a spark. You see that language? God says the man, the self-sufficient man, the strong man, the rebellious man, it's going to burn. And the, the spark that will light the fire is his works. And then they'll both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. Okay, so look at that. That's the first chapter of Isaiah. What does it say? It's the exact same as all the prophets. Israel's guilty. Israel's really, really guilty. Israel's phenomenally guilty. Really, really guilty. So what's God going to do? Punish them. Punish them. Punish them. What's going to be the result of the punishment? They're going to return to God. They're going to look to God. They're going to come back to God. What's God going to do? Restore them. Redeem them. Put them back in their land and make it okay. Drive out the sinners. Drive out the problem. And make them his people again. I'm nearly done. Chapter 2, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Has that happened? Not yet. By the way, how accurate is Isaiah, you know, as a prophet? Yeah. <laughs> Got one of these in the back, yeah. yeah. Isaiah is batting a thousand. Isaiah accurately predicts, Isaiah 53, right? Accurately predicts that Jesus is going to be crucified. And that after the crucifixion, God's going to prolong his days. In fact, it is Isaiah that is the first place in the whole Bible where we learn about substitutionary atonement. He's got the right theology. He's predictively accurate. And he says that a day is coming, which he says will be in the last days, when Jerusalem, the mountain of God, will be the place that the nations all flow to. Hasn't happened yet. Does it have to? Yeah. And does it have to happen literally, genuinely in the Middle East, in Jerusalem? Well, yes. And can you get away with allegorizing that and saying it's the church? Well, no. Because all nations are not flowing to it, nor is it the mountain of God. Many peoples, says verse 3, will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many people and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob. Who's that about? Is that about the church? House of Jacob. Church ever called house of Jacob? No, this is about Israel. Come, house of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. For thou hast abandoned thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land was also filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land was also filled with horses. And there was no end to their chariots. Their land was also filled with idols. And they worship the work of their hand, that which their fingers have made. Notice each of those categories. Here's what their problem is. They start out with influences that are not godly influences. The influences from the east. And then they're too rich. There's no end to their silver and gold. And then they have horses and chariots. They trust in their own military strength. And then they have their idols and they worship their own gods because they're already healthy. They've got food. They've got money. They've got warfare. They've got horses and chariots. We're fine. We're good. So what do we do? Do our own thing. We don't need God. Isn't this the pattern over and over? When people get comfortable, they don't need God. Don't look for God. Don't chase after God. So what does God have to do? He has to take all that away so that people will feel their dependency on him. And that's what he does over and over again. You'd think at some point we would recognize the pattern. And when we're going through trouble in our own life, you'd think we would go, oh, God's doing this. This must be for my own good. All things must be working together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his birth. That must be what's happening. No, no. Instead, we shake our fist and go, why are you doing this to me? Because we're just so egocentrically sinful and rebellious. So their land was also filled with idols, and they worshiped the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust. From the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty... The proud man will look and be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Does that sound familiar? Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Somebody look up Revelation 6, 15 and 16 and read it for us. And you're going to see that what Isaiah is saying is God is going to bring out the time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again. He's going to bring out the day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. For what purpose? For Israel. To humble Israel. For what purpose? To restore them. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's all the way in Genesis with the Abrahamic covenant. It's all the way in Revelation with the summing up of all things. Revelation 6, 15 and 16. Who'd like to read that for us? Jeff's got it. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. See the parallel? So there's a purpose to the day of the Lord that's coming. There's a purpose to the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And it is predicted by the prophets. It's predicted by Jesus. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Isaiah tells us it's all about correcting Israel and Jerusalem. And the proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up and against the oaks of Bashan and against the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all of the beautiful craft. All you need to know there is that when Isaiah was writing, these various areas took a great deal of confidence in their ability to have or their ability to produce because of things like the cedars of Lebanon. And so that made Lebanon a wealthy trading area. Or the Oaks of Bashan, that became their trading commodity. And then um, the ships of Tarshish, that was their trading ability. That's how they all got rich. That's how they all got powerful. That's how they all had authority. And God says, I know all of those things. I'm going to tear every one of them down. Verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled. The loftiness of men will be abased. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish, and the men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes in the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats. In other words, they're going to go in the holes of the ground where the moles live. They're going to go in the caves where the bats live and like, get out of the way. I need this space. Their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliff before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. So stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostril, for why should he be esteemed? Okay, so that's the first two chapters of Isaiah says the same thing. Yes, God's going to punish them. Yes, God's going to restore them. What's the method of restoration? Punishment first. At the end of the punishment, restoration, redemption, bring them back. You get a feel for this? We could still go to uh, many more passages, and in the weeks to come, we probably will. And I know, I said a couple weeks ago, I know that I'm beating a dead horse. I hope I'm beating a living horse. I hope that what you're getting from this is just the overwhelming amount of evidence where you're simply being convinced that this is what the Bible says and says and says. And then it says it, and then it says it some more. Then it says it again. Then it recaps. And it just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. And so we have to adjust our thinking and our theology and our worldview and our understanding of history and our understanding of the future to embrace what the Bible actually says, which is God is not done with Israel. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback 
and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.